Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So you guys remember the game 20 questions where you come up with something random in your head and you give somebody the opportunity to ask 20 yes or no questions to see if they can guess what's on your mind. Well, when I was a kid, they actually had this little handheld version of the game uh, of 20 questions and it was this little gadget and it, as a kid, it totally freaked me out because I thought it was like in my head. I, like I couldn't stump the thing. Not only could I not stump the thing, but it would be, you'd get to questions like 18 and 19, it would be asking these like super vague questions. Like, if you dropped it, would it break? And, you know, is it smaller than a bread box? Because apparently a bread box is a standard unit of measurement. Uh, and, and then out of nowhere, you know, from these vague questions, it would, like, totally guess what you were thinking about. It's like, is it George Washington's underwear? And it's like, how did you get that? It's amazing. Uh, but if you've ever played the game 20 Questions, it is called 20 Questions. You do get to ask 20 questions. But to be honest, when you're playing 20 Questions, it doesn't matter how many questions you ask. There's only really one question that matters. And that's the last question. Even if you get answers for the first 19 questions, if that last question is wrong, you lose the game. And in fact, you don't even need to use all 20 questions. If you can get to that last question in fewer questions, you're good to go. Because in the game of 20 questions, it's really only that last question that matters. And we've been in this series that we've been calling Other Hard Questions, and we've been examining and uh, addressing some of the most challenging questions around the, uh, the Christian faith. And we've tackled a lot of different ones, and we're going to continue to tackle more over the next few weeks. But today, we're coming to the question that, that I would argue is the most important question. It's the question that, if, if, even if like, all of the other questions don't have answers, if we can get an answer for this one, it explains the rest. And it's, it's the question, if we can't get an answer for this one, all of the rest of them fall apart. And that question is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he really rise from the dead? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then who cares what Christians think about the Bible or science or suffering or hell? None of that matters. But if Jesus really did die and was buried and he rose again on the third day and he, he did this all after he predicted that he was going to do this, then what he said matters, right? If somebody can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, I'm curious what they have to say about things, particularly about life after death. Because, of course, we can all theorize what happens after we die, but none of us have been there, right? But if somebody goes there and spends three days there and then comes back, I want to hear what he has to say about life after death because he's not talking about theories. He's talking about a reality that he's experienced. And so this is the cornerstone question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And I'm not the only one who thinks that this is the, the most important question. Even the apostle Paul he said much the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. 
And we're going to look at how much emphasis the Apostle Paul puts on this very question, this one question of whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. And he's talking to a group of Christians and skeptics in Corinth. And they, the, this group of, of people, they started to wonder whether or not Jesus ever rose from the dead and whether or not they would eventually rise from the dead, whether there really was this hope of resurrection for themselves. And Paul, he addresses this head on, and he uses some really strong language as he talks about it. In verse 12, he begins, he says, But if it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there, sorry, if it has been preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. You hear that? It's useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he didn't raise him from the dead if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your life is futile. You are still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And he wraps it up here. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right? He is uh, pulling no punches as he really lays out the fact that if, if there is no resurrection, then this is useless. Like, my preaching is useless. Your being here, your faith, it's all empty and useless. And there is no point to any of it if, in fact, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So we have to ask this question, did he really rise from the dead? And can we, can we know this? 2,000 years later, can we have any sense of assurance that Jesus really did rise in bodily form from the dead after being in a tomb for three days? And in order to answer this question, we have to begin by looking at the early claims that this happened. And we actually get one of these right here in this very same passage. If you go back a few verses, go up to verse 3. Here's one of the, the early claims that Jesus rose from the dead. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, uh, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and that's James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And we look and we see that right in the, the first century, we get these claims that Jesus rose from the dead doesn't mean it's true, doesn't mean that it actually happened, but we see that we have these claims from people saying they experienced the risen Jesus. And Paul talks about a, a number of witnesses, and we have written accounts from many of them as well. Uh, and then we have Paul even sharing his own account, that he saw the risen Jesus from the dead. And when we're, we look at these claims, it doesn't mean they're true, but there's only a few options for how we can interpret them. All right, either these guys are lying, just making the whole thing up, or they're lunatics. They're just crazy. They have a few screws loose. Like they really believe Jesus rose from the dead and they saw it, but they're, they're irrational. Or the whole thing's a legend. Nobody really saw this. These things were written down years later and just kind of developed and it was attached to Jesus later. Uh, or, or 
It's true. And they really did see Jesus raised from the dead, and he really is the Lord, right? And so we have to look at, at these different options. Maybe they were lying. It's possible, right? Especially if you think of like TV preachers today, you think of like the, the Creflo dollars of the world that take kind of truths and they twist them and they manipulate them and massage them in order to take advantage of people and they're making millions of dollars uh, by twisting these little truths. Lots of people can take advantage of others by lying. So maybe they did. The problem with this is that the disciples had nothing to gain by lying. They weren't making millions of dollars. It was actually quite the opposite. They were losing everything. They were losing their homes and their money and their families were rejecting them. And, and many of them were experiencing severe persecution, imprisonment, and most of the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were killed for their faith. Now, nobody dies for a lie, all right? Now, hear me out. People die for things that aren't necessarily true, right? Every Every religion, every cult, it has its, you know, its people, its martyrs who will die for what they believe, even if it turns out that what they believed is wrong, right? So people die for things that aren't true, but people don't die for things that they know aren't true, right? The fact that the disciples and the apostles, these eyewitnesses, died claiming that Jesus rose from the dead doesn't mean that they were right, but it means that they believed it right? It, this can't be a hoax. Even, even if we wanted to pretend that they could, like, come up with some reason to lie, they actually couldn't. It's, it's unbelievable that this many people would be able to maintain a lie in the face of such persecution for so long. In fact, uh, Chuck Colson, I don't know if you guys know who Chuck Colson is, but he was uh, Nixon's hatchet man, and he was a, an integral part of Watergate. Uh, and that whole scandal. And years later, he became a Christian, and he talked about how Watergate was actually one of the reasons why he became a Christian, why it, it proved to him that the apostles' testimony was true, his whole experience there. He says, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have been endured that if it weren't true. Watergate, on the other hand, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? It's absolutely impossible. Like, even if they hatched this plan, all right, it is impossible that all of them would have been able to maintain this lie for decades of severe persecution, even if they wanted to. It's just not realistic that they made this up and that they were lying about it. Now, just because they believed it was true doesn't mean that it was true. Maybe they were just irrational, right? And, you know, people will say it was just, you know, they were, they were simple-minded people from antiquity, these fishermen. They were uneducated, unintelligent. They were grief-stricken. And maybe in the midst of all of that, they had these hallucinations about Jesus uh, being resurrected from the dead. And it's a nice story, but it overlooks a lot of the evidence. First of all, there were too many witnesses 
in too many occurrences, in too many places. This wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't just one person who saw. It was massive groups of people at some times. It was individuals at other times. It was too many and too disparate. People can't all have the same hallucination at, the same t- at, at different times and in different ways and in different places. It's just not logical for this to happen. And, and even just this idea, this idea that there were these simple-minded fishermen that were grief-stricken, that might be true for a few of the witnesses, but not for all of them. Take Paul, for instance. The Apostle Paul, he, he was not in any way an idiot or a simple-minded person. He was fully rational. In fact, if, if you read through the writings of Paul, you see that he was an, an intelligent, educated, towering mind in his day. The, uh, early in uh, the development of the U.S., American law schools used to have their, their law students study and memorize the Book of Romans, which was one of Paul's letters. They would study and memorize the Book of Romans, not for its theological purposes, but because of the argumentation and the rhetoric that Paul demonstrated in the Book of Romans, because he was this incredibly rational person. So we can't write him off as some kind of simple-minded individual. And he wasn't grief-stricken that Jesus died because he hated Jesus and he hated Christians. He thought this was an, a, a heretical sect and he, he hated this so much that he devoted himself to persecuting and killing Christians to end the movement, all right? He was so much against it and then in a moment, he changed his tune. And one day he went from this murderous rage trying to end the Christian movement to praising Jesus. And he says that all happened because he saw the resurrected Jesus. Imagine if tomorrow, you wake up tomorrow and Donald Trump says, "Uh, you know what, I was wrong about Bernie this whole time. And he just starts praising Bernie and celebrating all of his social and political ideas. And he says, you know what? I'm not even going to run in 2020. Actually, no, I am. I want to be, I want to be the vice president to Bernie Sanders. He wants to jump on that ticket. All right. That, that is more likely than the apostle Paul leaving behind everything he believed in and changing his tune from this murderous rage against the Christian movement to celebrating and worshiping Jesus and becoming the most influential missionary in history for the sake of the gospel. And there was one instance that caused this whole change, and he says, I met the risen Jesus. He had no reason to lie. He wasn't grief-stricken. He had no reason to hallucinate. Take James, the brother of Jesus, all right? Up until the crucifixion, James thought his brother had lost his mind, claiming to be the son of God, claiming all these things. James was like, Jesus, you've gone too far. He thought he lost his mind. All right, and then the next thing you know, James is like the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because he met the risen Jesus. He actually encountered his brother raised back from the dead. And in James' letter, we have one of James' letters that he wrote, he actually calls Jesus his glorious Lord. I have brothers. <laughs> Two of them. I don't, who, anybody have a brother? Okay. What would your brother have to do for you to call him your gl- glorious Lord? Right? Here we have James, the half-brother of Jesus, calling him his glorious Lord for one reason. One reason only. He saw his brother die, spend three days in a tomb, and then was alive again. 
right? And, and he was a skeptic. He wasn't grief-stricken. You add this to all of the other accounts, all of the other eyewitnesses who saw Jesus raised from the dead. And yes, you might be able to chalk up a few of these stories to, you know, it was kind of peer pressure or whatever, and it was kind of like maybe grief and all of that. Maybe you could do that with a few. But you can't take all of this evidence and say it was a bunch of kooks who dreamed something up. It's just not plausible. And then when you you add back into the equation the persecution that they endured for this whole season of the rest of their lives, like I believe things strongly about like the past memories that I've had that I'm like, yeah, I'm certain it happened. And when somebody, and and I'll be certain it happened. And somebody be like, did it really happen? And I'll be like, "I, I really think so, but I'm not sure I could be wrong. If somebody held a gun to my head in those instances, I would be like, you're right, maybe I'm wrong. These guys had their feet to the flames and they refused to recant this, this one truth. They saw Jesus alive again after he was dead, right? If there was any question in your mind that it didn't happen, you say, maybe I was wrong, but not them. They knew what they saw and there were too many of them. You can't chalk it up to anything else. But maybe it was a legend, Right? So maybe it wasn't about them lying or maybe they weren't crazy. Maybe it was a legend. Maybe there were no eyewitnesses. Maybe these stories developed over time, right? And, and it's true. When you think about the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? These are the gospels. These are the accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection where we kind of get more like his biographies. Uh, those gospel accounts were written a, a few decades after. Even Mark, which most scholars think is the earliest written, Uh, Let's say it was written in 65 AD. That's 35 years. And who knows, it was written in a different language. It was written in Greek, which wasn't the language spoken in Jerusalem in that time. And so it could have been written to people hundreds of miles away 35 years later. It is conceivable that Jesus was a charismatic leader. People got behind him. They liked him. And over the next 35 years, stories got added. And all of a sudden, there's like miracles. And, and next thing you know, he rose from the dead. And all of this gets included in there. All right? That's, that's conceivable. And this is probably one of the most common uh, objections to the resurrection that I hear today. Is that all of this was a legend. It wasn't about liars or lunatics. It's just a legend that developed over time. However, this is something that, that even secular scholars know isn't true. Even like atheists and agnostics, historians and New Testament scholars alike all understand that this idea doesn't hold weight. And I want to show you why. And it's actually right here in this passage that we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians. All right? This passage, uh, there's, there's five things that we, uh, that all scholars whether they're atheists or they're Christians, agree about this. First, this is an authoritative record, all right? By authoritative, it doesn't mean that Paul is writing the inspired word of God. That's, they don't agree about that, obviously. But they, by authoritative, it means it's, it's a reliable historical document. We know Paul wrote this. He wrote it in about 56 A.D., and right here, he says, what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the other. So now, all right, we're not talking about 65 AD. We know Paul wrote this in somewhere between 55 and 57 AD, so we'll call it 56 AD, all right? So we're getting a little bit closer, all right? But that's still a lot of time, 21 years. But the historians, they also know that 
when Paul says that I, what I received, I passed on to you, he's recounting what he had already passed on to them, that Paul visited them in 51 AD, all right? And so Paul gave them this claim to the resurrection in 51 AD. So we're getting a little bit closer to the events that they're already talking about the resurrection as something that happened in 51 AD. There's another thing that scholars agree upon, and that, that this is a creed, all right? It doesn't come through in the English language, but if you read it in the Greek, this little section here, it actually is written with a, a rhythm and a meter, and they understand that it was a creed that was packaged together, right? It's not just Paul kind of talking extemporaneously, recounting some of the ideas that he shared. He's talking about a specific creed that he shared with them when he first came, and he's recounting that. Three, creeds are the core beliefs, all right? And this is important. Creeds talk about the very, the very core of what you want to get across, right? At Beacon, we have a mission statement, and we took time to craft this mission statement because it's the core of who we are. Pop quiz, who knows our mission statement? <laughs> all right, some of you guys, I know you guys, let me hear it. Love God, love people, grow in Christ, serve the world. That's like a, a creed. It's a, it's a package statement. It's something that's concise and it's transferable. Uh, and, and this here is a creed. And a creed gets to the core beliefs. And if you notice in this creed, it doesn't talk about Jesus being a good moral teacher. It doesn't talk about any of the moral teachings of Jesus. It talks about his death, his burial, and his resurrection, which means that this is the core belief to the Christian faith. If this was a legend built on a great moral teacher, then at the core would be his moral teachings, and on the periphery would be these claims about miracles and the resurrection. But the resurrection is the message. Like, you get that? It's not that the resurrection supports anything. The resurrection is the message. Not just in this creed, but throughout the whole of the New Testament, that is the message. N.T. Wright, he's a New Testament scholar, he says, For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is the heart of the gospel. It is the object of faith, the ground of justification, the basis for obedient Christian living, the motivation for unity, and not least, the challenge to the principalities and powers. You get that. The, the fact that the resurrection is part of this creed means that it was, it was not just added in at some point. At, it was core to the message, all right? Now, here's the other thing that scholars agree upon, whether they're secular atheists or they're Christians. Paul received this creed about five years after the resurrection. That when he talks about receiving this, elsewhere in Paul's writings, we get the timeline. We find out that a few years after Paul was converted, he saw the resurrected Jesus. He went up to Jerusalem, and he met with Peter and James. And it was just the three of them. Man, would it be cool to be a fly on the wall for that, right? You have Peter who denied Jesus, and then he got to see the resurrected Jesus. You have James who thought his brother was an a lunatic, and he got to meet the resurrected Jesus. And then Paul, who was the persecutor of the church, he got to meet the resurrected Jesus. Imagine them just sharing their stories of what they saw and how they felt and that. But Peter, uh, uh, Paul, he spent 15 days with these guys, and this is when he received this creed. So now we're not talking 35 years, we're talking five years after the resurrection. He received this creed. And here's the fifth thing that scholars know, creeds aren't written overnight. 
right? You don't start with a creed. You start with ideas and you keep talking about them. And when it starts to be uh, more spread out, that's when you need to codify it into a creed so that you don't lose anything. Things don't get lost in translation. For, for instance, it took us 12 years to get to the mission statement that we now have as a church, 12 years to get it down to what it is today. It takes time for creeds to be packaged in this way. And so for Paul to have this creed at year five means it was written earlier. And when, when you look at this creed, twice it talks about these things happening in accordance with the scriptures. So at this point, not only do they have the understanding of the resurrection, but how the Old Testament was pointing to the resurrection of Jesus all along. And it's all fitting together. The fact that they had this at five years pushes the original claims to the resurrection all the way back to when these events happened. Even liberal scholars will say it had to be at, at the most a year or two after these happened, which means there's not room for this to have come up as a legend. It's happening, most scholars believe, within weeks or months after Jesus' death, people were claiming that he was rose from the dead already. No room for legend here. And it wasn't in a far-off land. Remember, Paul received this in Jerusalem, the place where these things uh, actually happened. Now, because of all of this, even, even atheists and agnostics who are scholars, who know the evidence, agree that the resurrection isn't a myth, that it's something that the, the apostles really believed happened. Dale Allison He's a New Testament scholar at Princeton. He says, it is a historical fact that some of Jesus' followers came to believe that he had been raised from the dead soon after his execution. We know some of these believers by name. One of them, the Apostle Paul, claims quite plainly to have seen Jesus alive after his death. Thus, for the historian, Christianity begins after the death of Jesus, not with the resurrection itself, because he's an agnostic, he doesn't believe that, but with the belief in the resurrection. Right? E.P. Sanders, another agnostic New Testament scholar at Duke, he says it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. He even says that they had the experience, right? Bart Ehrman, he's probably one of the most outspoken atheists against the, the Christian message, right? And he admits Jesus, followers, and later Paul had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, a fact, what the reality was that gives rise to the experiences, I don't know. He even says elsewhere. <laughs> Finally, we know that after his death, his followers experienced what they described as the resurrection, the appearance of a living but transformed person who had actually died. They believed this, they lived it, and they died for it. All right? We can't, if anybody tells you that this was a legend that developed over time, they don't know the historical evidence because even secular scholars don't posit that idea. It's without a doubt, people saw the risen Jesus after his death and they believed it immediately, which brings us back to either they were crazy or they were lying and neither of those hold weight. And you ask these guys who, who say that, you know, clearly there was a resurrection experience. You ask them why, why don't they believe in the resurrection? They say, because it can't happen. It's not because the evidence doesn't point there. They just come in with this expectation, resurrections can't happen. That can't be the answer, and so they refuse to believe that it's possible. It's like if, if you and I went down to the beach, going down or hanging out at Jones Beach, and imagine I decided to take a, a metal detector and walk up and down the beach, and I, I come back to you, and I come back with this pile of garbage because it's 
beach is gross. Uh, and it's all metal stuff. And I'm like, look at all this metal that I found here at the beach. But I didn't find any plastic. Can you believe that? In fact, there is not a shred of plastic anywhere on this beach. I'd be crazy for making a statement like that. I can't claim that there's no plastic because my metal detector can't pick up plastic. And this is what uh, these secular historians are, are doing when they say, no, it can't be the resurrection because they're coming in with tools that don't actually allow them to believe that the resurrection is even possible. And they write it off before you even pose the question. But you look at the evidence and the evidence suggests Jesus really did rise from the dead. And if you're a skeptic here today and you're on the fence about whether these things happen, I want to encourage you to examine the evidence. Because most often when I have conversations with people, they will talk about things that maybe they heard here and there, and you, know, you read an article here and there, but uh, do you know what the evidence really points to? Have you examined it for yourself? There's a, a couple of resources I, I recommend. One is that Mark Clark book, The Problem of God, that uh, we still have some in the lobby. We've already paid for more than half of it, so it's only five bucks for you to grab that book on your way out. Uh, another great one is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He was a, a secular atheist and an investigative reporter who ended up examining the evidence, and he came to faith, and he retraces his steps and goes through that evidence once again. Uh, it's a great resource. Examine the evidence for yourself. And I want to encourage you even, if you've never done it, read through the New Testament. Just read through. Don't read through it as if it's like a, a holy text or anything. Just read through it and see what it says and see what you find there. But if you are a Christian or if you do believe in the resurrection, which I think is most of you guys, I have a question. If there is no resurrection, if it turns out it didn't happen, is your life pitiable? And this is kind of a strange question, but Paul suggests that his life is worth pitying if the resurrection isn't true. That it's, it's actually something that people would look at him and say, you wasted your life. Because he put all his eggs in this one basket and he had nothing else to rely on. And if the resurrection didn't happen, his life would have been a complete waste and people would have pitied him. I will admit to you, I don't want a pitiable life. I don't. I, I do my best to have, uh, to be honest, I want to have an enviable life, but at very least, I want to have a respectable life. I want to live in a house that's respectable, and I want to uh, you know, go on vacations that are respectable and have experiences that are respectable. And to be honest, if, if it turns out there is no resurrection, I don't know if people would pity me because of my life because I gave up everything for the sake of the resurrection. And yet, you and I here today, we know about the resurrection of Jesus because the Christians in the first century said, I'm willing to abandon a respectable life. I'm going to live a pitiable life. I'm going to give everything to the sake of the resurrection to make sure that the world knows that Jesus rose from the dead and that grave is empty and we have hope and a future in Jesus. And you and I know about this because they said, I will live a pitiable life. And here we are 2,000 years later, and I don't know if American Christians kind of have this even as a, an idea in their minds, because to be honest, our lives look very much like everybody else's, and we live in the same homes, and we pursue the same things for ourselves and for our children. I have this new 
daughter, haven't had one of those before. Uh, I, I, it catches me off guard how much I want to like provide a good life for her. And I have to, to challenge that because if there's one thing my daughter learns from me, I want her to learn that Jesus rose from the dead because this is the question that matters. And is, are my decisions along the way going to build that in her, that I'm confident in the resurrection or that I'm confident that if she works hard and she gets into good schools and if she has some good experiences, she can live a nice life and she can have a respectable life. I don't want that for my daughter. I want her to have a life that people would pity if the resurrection isn't true. I want her to sell everything for the gospel because 2,000 years from now, I want people to still know that Jesus rose from the dead. And we talk, we look around, and we see that kids are, are walking away from faith, and this whole time, are they watching their parents abandon themselves to the resurrection? Or are they watching their parents abandon themselves to the American dream? And it gets sacrificed. No wonder the world around us doesn't believe in the resurrection because our lives don't look like we believe in the resurrection. And I'm not saying this as a charge to you. This is, this is a charge to me as well. I hope, I want us to be a people that if we believe in the resurrection, then let's live for the resurrection. Let's make decisions that say, you know what? Yes, if the resurrection isn't true, then, then this was a waste. Let's abandon ourselves to this so that the world will know that Jesus lives and there is hope for us all. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing for us to even think about the reality of somebody dying and then coming back to life. And I, I know, I, I personally... I, it, it seems incredible at times, and yet I can't shake the reality that it's true. It's true. And, and because you raised Jesus from the dead, we have this hope that you're going to raise us also, God. And I pray that you will develop that hope in us. Give us a confidence in you. Let us abandon all else for this mission of letting the world know that Jesus lives and Jesus saves and he is our glorious Lord. Give us whatever we need for this mission, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name.